Welcome back to another episode of Adoption Unfiltered. My name is Sarah Easterly, and I am an adoptee. I'm joined with my colleagues and friends, Kelsey Vandervliet-Ranyard, a birth parent, and Lori Holden, an adoptive parent. And we have a special guest with us today. I'm very happy to be able to introduce you to Dr. Deborah McNamara. Um, she is a friend, a colleague, and someone I consider a mentor in parenting and at the Newfeld Institute. Um, as you know, Deb, but our listeners may not, I found uh, Dr. Gordon Newfeld's material on attachment and child development as a brand new mother, a time that came with that great shock that every new parent goes through, I think, when you realize the enormity of being responsible for another being's life and um, emotional well-being, but also at a time when, as an adoptee, I was meeting genetic relatives, the first I'd ever known through my two daughters, and then beginning to understand adoption, separation, and attachment in a whole new way. Um, you could say that I've been on a mission ever since to bring Dr. Newfield's understanding to the adoption community to better support adoptees and their families with an attachment-based relational model of developmental science. Uh, Dr. Newfeld joined us in season one for what is still our most watched episode to date. And um, we're just incredibly honored to have you join us today too, Deborah, because I know that you have so much attachment-based wisdom to share with our audience audiences also. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you all. Uh, before we begin, I thought I'd share with our listeners your formal bio. Uh, Dr. Deborah McNamara is an experienced clinical counselor with over 25 years of experience in mental health and educational settings, as well as private practice, and a leading international expert who provides counseling and educational services to support parents, professionals, and educators. She has presented to the United Nations and the Dalai Lama Center for Peace and Education. Deborah specializes in the relational developmental approach based on the work of Dr. Gordon Newfeld, as I mentioned, empowering parents to become the expert on their children with everyday questions and practical strategies. Um, she came to this work as a new mother herself, curious and confident that this approach could shift not only her children's futures, but also her professional approach to supporting and helping others. Today, she serves on faculty at the Newfeld Institute. Deborah is the author of Rest, Play, Grow, Making Sense of Preschoolers or Anyone Who Acts Like One. Love that subtitle. subtitle. And the children's picture book, The Sorry Plane. Got the whole collection here. And her latest book, Nourished, Connection, Food, and Caring for Our Kids and Everyone Else We Love, which we're here to talk about today. So, um, Without any more, I'm ready to, to dig in with you, Deborah. Um, I have been waiting and waiting for this book to come out since I first heard you present at the Newfield Conference in 2017. Um, and part of that reason is because I know that um, many adoptees who I know um, have experienced issues around food or with stomach aches or digestion trouble, which you make sense of throughout the whole book, but especially um, on starting on page 69 is when I kind of felt like I was really like seeing the connection to adoption specifically through Rowan's story. And I know he wasn't an adoptee, I don't believe, but um, there was a lot about childhood trauma and defenses through his story. And I was just wondering if you could start by talking um, about the role trauma can play in food and digestion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the... 
trying to put the pieces together of not only the food issue, the attachment issue, and then of course there's emotion and all of these things must come together. And so it was a bit of a puzzle when I started delving into it and took me in many different directions, including gastroenterology and gut microbes and um, the new science of the gut. But essentially, if we understand that what, what it comes down to at the end of the day is that food is meant to be served in the context of togetherness. And the reason for that is that the body is then more at rest and able to digest and use what is given. And of course, the pleasure of eating and being in a relational context, which is nourishing and you know emotionally safe, all of those things become intertwined. So it becomes an anchor. It becomes a resting place. It becomes a place where we're fully nourished, body, heart, and mind. The challenge is, though, is that if food is not served in the context of togetherness, then it serves emotional distress. It can't be digested well. It uh, The whole system isn't primed and ready to focus on nutrition. It's focused on solving an emotional problem. Now, that doesn't mean that adults aren't trying to provide a relational context and emotional safety. It's actually whether the child is experiencing that. It's not necessarily even what we're providing. And, you know, when I did talk to foster and adopt um, adoptee parents, you know, they talked about that process of a child coming into their care and settling in and emotional safety increasing, relationship increasing, and of course, the receptivity to the food and what they had to offer also increased with it. Gosh, that that just um, definitely, definitely resonates um, so much. Um I don't want to give away too much from the book, but I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about um, just on a high level. I, I, I feel like that chapter you wrote when connection and food come apart and that you just touched on a little bit is such an important thing about what, and I loved that um, there was a line about why eating shouldn't be disconnected from human attachment, which you just touched on. But um, can you say more about some of that and, and some of the things maybe when food becomes um love and we pursue its comfort outside of and detached from relationships that some of that that and food and attachment specifically it was interesting you know as i was looking at because i being in in practice as a counselor i was pulling through a lot of the experiences that i was have i was calling through how relational issues were also um became eating issues and how eating issues could also become relational issues and it isn't always what just happens in the home. It's also what's influencing a child in the outside world that the home is unresponsible for dealing with any emotions that come home from school or whatever. Parents don't create every food problem, which I think has been a huge myth in this area. Um, kids get stirred up emotionally in all sorts of areas. Now, the different types of emotional relational challenges that you would see is that children take the lead on food. There's three in particular, but one is that children take the lead on food and uh, they become less receptive to what we have to offer. They may become more picky, commanding, demanding, less likely to settle. Um, you may provide their favorite food and then they change their minds and you, you feel like you're in a power struggle with the child. The second type of attachment issue around food that can happen is when we end up in these huge food battles and a lot of pushing and pulling and resistance back and forth, tons of frustration in both the child and the parent, and you get this detachment. 
Some kids come in and they're not even, you know, attached necessarily. They may already be detached. Uh, you can have sensitivities that are too great that the child hasn't landed uh, yet into the relationship in a deep way for lots of different reasons. And so you get this push-pull resistance, less receptivity. And finally, the other one is just transference of um, our hungers, not only for attachment, but for food into many different places. And so you can see that um, it, it should only feel natural to really eat from your people that you're connected to. And so you can see children uh, be quite reticent and quite shy to eat from other people. But when one is hungry um, to be fed, uh, not just uh, relationally, but food-wise, they can seek that comfort in lots of different places. And so it can transfer. It can transfer to one's peers. So you might have a child who just wants to eat like their peers or people that they were attached to or are attached to, but not eating from um, the adults that are taking care of them. I saw this a lot at my one of my daughter's schools in their teenagers. They have a hot lunch uh, program, but they didn't want to eat from the cooks and the chefs. They wanted to eat what other kids were eating. So if other kids brought different food and it was like, yeah, I'd like an orange, whatever their friends were eating, they wanted to eat, but they were not receptive to what adults uh, had to offer. You also see the last thing is here is you see obviously the uh, challenge of the digital world, which I think is very concerning. Uh, for parents because what happens is our kids now turn to the digital world to other teens or other youth that are now eating and showing what they're eating in a particular day um, how to restrict their diets different food fads and they're turning to anything but a personal connection to feed them and it is absolutely wrecking havoc with our with our capacity to nourish our children and to keep them healthy not just their bodies but our relationships and their emotions and to keep them safe this way so as soon as food falls out of those beautiful relationships caretaking relationships we're we're on our way to having some trouble that's for sure yeah, I thank you for that. And and I love that this book isn't it it's hard to describe what your book is about for me, you know, because it's about I mean your subtitle says so much connection, food and caring for our kids um because it's not just about the food, it's about all of those things that you mentioned. Um I'd love to just talk for a moment here just about the defenses and one thing that um also, well, not, not one thing, many things resonated, but one of the many things that resonated was Mateo's story. Um, and his father died when he was five, you shared, and um, you wrote that the attachment rug had been pulled out from underneath him once. So why wouldn't it happen again? Um, and that he was full of separation distress, but lacked words for his emotions because he was too alarmed and overwhelmed. So um, and you write a lot about vulnerability and dependence. And I think this is a really important point in our space because we hear a lot that adoptees have a reactive attachment disorder or RAD, and it kind of puts the puts a focus on the behavior um, where what you're doing and what Dr. Newfield does is look at what's underneath and, um, and what's going on. And so I think that um, I just, I loved that you wrote about the vulnerability um, and how that ties in with food independence. And I would love to just hear you share a bit about that, if you would. Yeah, well, uh, and it's a beautiful question and insight, because I think it's actually at the crux of the book. I think if we realize that feeding someone is about inviting them to be dependent upon us, and if we realize that dependency is vulnerable, it means we can get hurt, we can get wounded, we can be left, we can be betrayed. Um, we can suffer 
we may not be taken care of, the promise may not materialize, then we understand that human vulnerability is hard for everyone. And it's also hard if you have experienced that as well in any shape or form. And, you know, and that was Mateo's story. He had lost his father. Um, his father passed away very young when he was very young. And so that sense of loss uh, permeated uh, his little emotional system. And that made it difficult for him to rest in his mother's care. Now, his mother was an incredible mother. Uh, her invitation for relationship was generous. She was warm. She was tenacious. <laughs> uh, she She's incredible. Um, and she won him. She won his heart over and uh, helped put him to rest. But there is always that little question mark for him that his mother had to continue to try to answer over and over again of, I will take care of you. I will take care of you. You're not too big. You're not too much. You're not too difficult. And the more that she was able to help bring him to rest, the more he was able to be receptive to her care and, uh, and ate very well, grew very well. <laughs> He's now uh, in his teenage years, actually. And it's interesting now because he was uh, he was five when she first came to see me. But now uh, it's 10 years later and uh, his is actually quite interesting that his coming of age, he had a, a horrific nightmare where he uh, actually watched the Batman movie, you know, where they have the, the three Batmans in it and the mother uh, passes. Well, spoiler alert. Um, and so loses his mother in this and uh it absolutely unhinged him. It was a huge nightmare for him. It was the, you know, what if I lost you too? This is the story of my life. And so again, in his teenage years, as he's separating from his mother, she's then, how am I gonna be the answer to my teenager and hold on to him? And it's not just about food. It's receptivity is to sleeping, to doing homework, to getting our values in, to protecting, to guiding, to giving them instructions about the digital world. Like somehow food has become so separated from all the other caretaking things we do yet it's the most frequent things we do we only put them to bed once a day but we could feed them up to three times a day and so it's astonishing to me that this whole opportunity to invite dependency through feeding because it's not really about the food like when people read my book they're like this actually isn't about food no i know it's just how we enact relationship and how food is symbolic of it and how we need receptivity and we need the relationship and emotional rest to be able to care and nourish for our loved ones and so i think you're right it is hard to put our finger on it because it's something that's gone missing it's like why are we talking about this this is what culture used to do to to help create the conditions here for this dependency but um, our dependents aren't depending on us like they need to be. And that's the challenge. I really appreciate you saying that and telling Mateo's story there because what it's bringing up for me is that um, we as adoptive parents can't give what we don't have. And so something you said made me think, so my relationship with food is going to influence um, my ability to nourish because it's all interconnected right and so i think in our country uh especially women in in my generation have had a, a mixed relationship with food and nourishment really um so anyway that's aside but i i am so excited deborah that our books are coming out um near the same time yours just came out and ours is about to come out 
Um, and we do have some commonalities with with you being being on staff at the Newfeld Institute and Sarah's work in our in her part as well. You and I both write about the shortcomings of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, because I address that as well. And I'd love to hear you share what Maslow revealed in terms of self actualization and relationships. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting when you go into Maslow's story and you realize he had a horrific childhood uh, with uh, trauma from both his parents. And so he created this hierarchy of needs based on food first and love coming third. And he put at the top of the scale the self-actualization. But he also studied with the um, Blackfoot Siksika uh, First Nations here. And he he took it's said that he took their conceptualization of a hierarchy and he didn't get it quite right, even though he was influenced by indigenous beliefs around this. And that was that the epitome of development is actually not self actualization. It's actually becoming a self and a mature one so that you can then become a provider and a caretaker and contribute to community to contribute to others so that you can fulfill your potential as a caretaker that our growth doesn't just stop with our own potential it's how we then go on to nourish another person's potential and anybody who's a parent and a caretaker <laughs> a teacher a coach anyone who has stepped into that role you know, a gardener, um, someone who takes care of, you know, pets and animals. This is uh, how we are contributing uh, for the care of others. It also preserves culture. It also preserves our environment and our, our land and our uh, history for, you know, our generations that are to come. We're also preserving that 100 years down the line, as Indigenous Beliefs also said. So Maslow was influenced by the culture of the time, which was, you know, it's all about me. <laughs> <laughs> domination, um, a hierarchy that ended with us instead of contributing back. It wasn't a relational model at all. Um, it was very much a self-serving, narcissistic, uh, sort of entitled view of human nature, which was not just Maslow, but I think a reflection of the culture, the North American culture uh, that he was in. And it kind of became our template, like our uh, the, the definitive word on you know, you, you need air because you can't go along without that. You need water. You can't go along without that. You need food. You can't go along without that. And you need connection because you can't go on long without that either. But it, it didn't make it into that first level. No, it didn't. And, you know, your, your comment, too, about, you, you know, I, I did find in the research a lot of parents who I interviewed uh, a lot from around the world about uh, food and feeding and detachment. And I heard over and over again, I don't want my children to inherit diet culture, my challenges, my shame, my, my, whatever it is uh, about food. And I actually really tried to write a book that wouldn't be provocative in any of those ways, because I thought there's enough of that out there. First of all, <laughs> I need to write a food book that people are going to feel um, safe reading, I guess, in some ways without these kind of triggers around the doorway, every you know, around every page. I'm not saying that I don't think it isn't emotionally provocative. I think it is, but not for those reasons. But one of the things, and I've had to, you know, uh, 
grasp this question and say, well, what, it, what am I trying to say here then about our own relationship with food and how do we lead and how do we help our kids become dependent on us? When every expert told me in North America, we all have some eating issue just because of the nature of the culture we're in. Fear, panic, guilt, shame, whatever it might be. And I realized that if we understand human development, our capacity to change and to become strong providers and to do differently than what our parents would have taught us or past generations are handing down or even what the culture is pushing us towards is that capacity to feel conflict inside of us and opposing um, directions. So there's a side that parents were aware I could go down this path and I could repeat some things here and I could say some things that wouldn't be healthy for my kids as they develop around food. But there was this huge side as well of desire and caring that said, I don't want my kids to have to suffer from this. I don't want my kids to see this side. I, I want to struggle with this myself and show up in a different way. The number of case studies that I went through when I read of parents who had eating disorders, who becoming a parent, they had a new struggle with their eating disorder and actually found a whole new way through it because they had to sit in the struggle internally. And, and that is the hopeful message is that it's not fait accompli for us. It's not history repeats itself. It's about making room for that internal dialogue of this is what happened. This is where I want to go. Now, how do I struggle with this inside of me? And how do I show up differently? And parents did. Oh my goodness, I have a whole chapter on how parents just like the stories they told me at, you know, the seven different challenges that they went through to show up to be their kids best bet. I mean, it was so inspiring <laughs> to hear the stories of, of parents and uh, the genuine struggle and how they found their way through. So it's hopeful. I just want to give that message. It's a hopeful message. I loved that chapter so much. That was a, a great chapter. And so, and you're right. So much hope um, that, and I think that as an adoptee with lots of wounding behind me, I like, I love that chapter. You know, I want to know that that doesn't define who I am as a parent, that there's, that there's a way through. And, um, and I love the hope that you get through those stories. Great. Um, I wanted to talk about chapter seven and, um, specifically the power of radar. I loved that phrase. And when I first got to him, like, what, you know, <laughs> that felt so new to me. I've not heard, you know, that was after so much time spent in the new field material. I've never heard the power of radar before. And I, I just love that. It's still just, I've got the, it's so new and fresh to me, but, um, you know, you describe it as knowing that you're on someone's relational radar and that's what fosters trust and dependence. And, um, and I loved that. I think, you know, for those of us like myself who grew up in a closed adoption, um, I will just say that nothing says you're not on someone's radar as a closed adoption yeah. because, you know, you, there's no contact, no information, no history. There's none of the ancestral stories being passed down. There's no genetic mirroring. Who do I look like? There is just nothing. And so you just feel that you are not on their radar. I think that almost when I, I just felt like I, I had a whole new understanding of adoption, even just thinking of that and thinking about when reunions are possible and they're not for every adoptee. But I almost wonder if the biggest determiner of whether a reunion is successful or not, at least from the adoptee's perspective, 
is finding out whether or not you were on the birth parents radar mm. and if you're still on their radar. Um, and so it just has me reflecting so much. And I, I just think there's so much that's important about that as it relates into dependence and um, vulnerability too. But then I also, um, you know, just looking at my colleagues here, um, Kelsey and Lori, both are involved in open adoptions, you know, and it's not a panacea that doesn't solve that, you know, there's no adoption without separation, but um, but there's another place of hope because I think that there's just some beautiful ways that um, that that we can still, you know, even you know through adoption, there are ways to show that we're on someone's radar. And I see my colleagues doing that. So I guess to back up a little bit, Deb, could you talk a little bit about that? And then I want to see. Um, I'd love to invite Kelsey to share because I know she just intuitively does this really well. Yeah. Well, you know, that sense of radar, there's that sense of power that um, our emotional system gives us to hone in, to focus, to make someone the object of our attention, which then focuses our caring, which focuses our desires, which focuses, you know, our beautiful intentions. And, you know, we can send intentions out, you know, to people that may not be with us you know if my kids are in university i still have lots of i keep try to keep them on my radar i'm thinking about them i think about when i'm going to see them again i think about what they might be doing um it's just there when you feel responsible or you feel connected in some way shape or form and remember that's your sense of feeling connected it doesn't even mean that other person is connected to you if you have that sense of connection to someone, your instincts and your emotions focus you in to be curious about them, to try to find ways to hold them close. You know, do I have the same eyes, the hair, you know, the mannerisms? It's everything saying, is there a sense of closeness here? Is the invitation reciprocated? And of course, those question marks leave us, um, you know, on the hook a little bit. And, and, um, can make us a little bit um, sad, melancholy that come with it, you know, sometimes we don't have an answer to that. Uh, I hope my kids are doing well. And sometimes I just tell myself, fill in the blanks, Deb, you'll feel much better. Yeah, of course, they're, you know, eating, and they're sleeping. <laughs> and, but I, you know, and, and the beautiful thing about, you know, attachment, I found this incredible quote, I, my research took me everywhere, but I found this incredible quote that a, an eight-year-old girl had written the rep, uh, epitaph to her father's, um, on her father's uh, grave. And he was a World War II soldier who had died. Uh, and the epitaph from his eight-year-old daughter said, Daddy, death is not a barrier to love. Now that's radar. That's radar. I cannot not be connected to you. And so we get to tell the stories that we want to tell. We don't always know someone else's truth, but what I do know is that that feeling that you are on someone's radar, whatever kind of job they do, <laughs> doesn't matter what kind of cooking it is, the food even tastes better if you believe that those intentions are there, that they are caring. And that means more uh, to nourish you than actually the food does. So it's, it's, you know, it's our perception of is someone caring for me? And of course, for us as providers, it's, you never feel the same way again, once you feel connected that way, you can't just sever something. 
uh, if that connection has been there. And um, last story, my friend who's a physicist said, I don't know what these particles are called in the universe, but she says it doesn't matter how far apart they are from one another. They constantly exist in relationships. So when one churns, the other turns. And she says these particles, I should really remember the name of it. They are never without a connection to each other and they shift in relationship no matter how far apart. And I'm just like, if that that's radar, that's the long thread of attachment, right? Um, so I don't know if that answers uh, it for you, but it's so invisible. It's something you just feel, it's hard to put words to. We just know it's there, but uh, food makes it visible. And that's why we talk so much about food. Deb, that's, um, that's so huge for me, this, um, this piece about, about being on someone's radar um, as a birth parent and our intentions for writing Adoption Unfiltered was really to unite the three sides that often find themselves so siloed. Um, and we have this tendency to believe that we are not on each other's radar. But then I also think that we kind of dip into this, um, this wondering if we are on each other's radar, especially as a birth parent who I'm in an open adoption. Um, and my child is, is seven years old. Um, you wonder as they grow up, like if you're on their radar, um, because I don't really remember what it's like to be seven years old. So you don't really know what's going. <laughs> it could be a hundred miles an hour up there. You don't know. Um, but I think um, there's actually a part that I wrote in, in my part of the book that is, uh, it's so funny that we're talking about food because the big part that we always talk about um, is my casserole story that I wrote. And it's this, um, hypothetical um, scenario where the birth parent is standing on the porch um, looking in the front window at the family gathering that's happening over the table over the dinner table and I, the birth parent is standing outside in the cold with their casserole um, wanting to go in and I think that you know more so than wanting to <laughs> eat the casserole or share the casserole is you're wanting that connection and you're wanting um, that relationship and you're wanting that inclusion. Um, and so that's, um, it's, it's real life. And so I, and for me personally, I, with my mother, baking has been such a huge part of our relationship and connection. Um, and my mother and I are two very different people, but I think that that is still such a strong connection for us um, in the kitchen. And um, I, I also am the fourth generation in my family to relinquish a child for adoption. And so in, in one bloodline through my paternal bloodline. And so it's, um, there's a lot of separation in that family. Um, but through reunion and everything, we've been able to forge different connections. And one of those has been through food. And um, I've gone to biological uh, family members for Thanksgiving and to sit at a table with them is very healing. Um, I have my grandmother, who is my, my dad's birth mother. I have her famous carrot cake recipe that I make. And like, we've just been... Um, 
I think it's food has been such a healing um, thing for reunion as well. And it's something that I love. I love to bake and cook for my daughter. And I hope to do the same for my son. And I think that, um, yeah, there's, there's such a healing element to it. And I know that it can bring so much um, turmoil and, and just hardship to like food can be such an obstacle. Um, but I also, I know too well the, the healing properties of it, of sharing a meal together. And um, yeah, and just, and to loop it back to being on someone's radar, I think that uh, open adoption, obviously you don't, just because you're in an open adoption, you don't automatically get placed on on people's radars, but um, the likelihood is higher. <laughs> but with closed adoption, there's just so much you don't know. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we do little things here and there. Um, to like almost as signals um that that they're on I for one I have like a tattoo that's for my for my son that I placed for adoption and every time I see him he asks me about it and I think it's a signal to him that he is um I mean he he literally can't <laughs> can't come off so um yeah yeah it's beautiful Oh, I loved your story and the image of uh, of the casserole standing outside the window. I mean, you can just feel it. And it's like, oh, how do you put words to something so exquisite and so beautiful? It's just that sense of invitation, that longing, that desire, that yearning that is born from this place of deep caring. And and whether or not it's reciprocated, it still exists inside of you. Um, and it's just, it's so beautiful how food stands in for sometimes the things that is hardest, that are hardest to say, you know, especially in a situation where you're coming in and there would be, oh, you know, anxiety to excitement to a whole range of emotion. And, and that really was food throughout history. Culture had embedded this meaning symbolically in food. Um, as it did in many things, flowers or whatever, and these gifts that we would give were symbolic of the relationship um, and the yearning that's inside of us. So, and and I had I did read throughout my research of reunions of uh, there was one story of a mother and a son reunion after decades, and the first thing they did was she came he came into her house and she cooked for him. She hadn't seen him for 20 years, or I can't remember the story. It might have been a war-torn situation. And she just cooked for him. And there weren't a lot of words, but she made him her favorite meals. And of course, our meals and our recipes are about relationship, their relationship to our land, to our people, our ancestors, our stories, what was handed to us. And so, of course, it connects these threads that if also they feel broken or untethered, these beautiful recipes just serve uh, serve to connect. I had a friend actually who was who found out that her father had another daughter with another relationship in her forties, and she brought, and it was in another country. So she brought something from Canada to the gathering, and like food wise, and brought her son's 
favorite, I believe it was pancakes and brought all the mix and everything to make the pancakes so that she could serve her, her sister that she, her new sister uh, that she had found. And it was just, she said, I just didn't know. It was just the most natural thing for me to do was to just share my kids and what they loved with this new family member. It was, it just connected some threads that didn't, that weren't, didn't feel connected. And so, yes, yes. I, you know, it's unfortunate that we have to even dissect it, but yes, to all of this, <laughs> use, use food as a symbol to navigate our, uh, our relationships and to convey that beautiful felt sense of invitation inside of us for sure. I found myself getting a little bit emotional when you were talking about the eight-year-old and the word, the epitaph, um, because just this week, um, there was a death in uh, an ad the adoption constellation of my family. And we are at this moment figuring out the radar of it and who's included in documentation of this life. Um, and it, it just, I think this fits in with being seen, being known, being attached, being acknowledged, and that human need we have for all of those things. Then I was also thinking that what do we always do after a funeral or some sort of a ritual? Mm -hmm. We go have casseroles. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, funerals, weddings, baptism, baptisms or births, and uh, yeah, celebrations always include our food because they cement the relationships together they bring us into sameness with each other they also carry symbolic meaning um they they decide who's in and out of the community not everybody gets to eat and so it is about significance if you're invited to share in those meals um it is it is about relationship first and foremost yeah beautiful along that line i just i loved that you you talk so much about rituals and food and how those are so important and that we've you know we we lost those to some degree and getting those back and um i just wanted to comment what something something kelsey said um that when you you two were talking just reminded me of um just this last beautiful chapter our communal communal table and i had started um but just this was the the story about the girls, um, the young girls and at the, at the, um, ponder Lake, I guess I can't remember now, but, um, and, and the lily pads and how they were plucking lily pads. And, um, and I just loved just your reflection and you're such a good storyteller, Deborah, just, um, of, you know, seeing something and, and why, you know, we really get an understanding of why it distressed you and, and what was going on. But I just loved that, uh, this line, the girls do not see the lake, okay, lake, as a living entity that is held together by a connect constellation of relationships. And I felt that that line when Kelsey was talking, I feel like that's mm -hmm. what we're all about too. And what we all need to be about just as we talk about our ancestors and the 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 broader culture and that that food really does for us. So um not really a question there, but just a goosebumps moment on my arms of just how touching that is yeah well it's this beautiful thank you for that it, it's this beautiful no matter what our bloodlines are if you want to put it that way or genetics or where we come from or, or head to there is this capacity one of the most important roles we can play is to play matchmaker matchmaker to our children to the people who will take care of them, to the people who are in their village, 
um, to the people that matter to them and to bring those people in close when they're required, right? And to assemble the cast as it were, and not to put children responsible for that and to understand that relationships and that constellation of relationships is important. And it's not just to uh, people, it's to the world uh, around them, it's to nature, it's to uh, mother nature as uh, personified in as a caretaker to us all. And so, um, you know, delivering them into the places where they can find rest uh, is really, really important. And seeing food as a gift that way um, is really important because we're, we are caretakers who are also taken care of by mother nature and whoever and wherever you believe mother nature came from. Um, and so putting ourselves in cascading care uh, is also really important for us as caretakers to feel taken care of too um, and to introduce our children to this beautiful lineage. So yeah, it just strikes me how much of, of what you do is also matchmaking. You know, Lori, when you're talking and assembling the cast, this is matchmaking. This is beautiful. This is an act of attachment. Uh, and there's nothing more sacred than to bring those attachments into a child's life this way and to make them work. Well, oh my gosh, I hope this this gives people there's like I said, it's just so hard to describe just how truly rich this book is. And I hope that this conversation, I know I feel nourished by it. So I hope that um, everyone else is nourished by it. And I hope that they'll go grab the book and read it because we just barely touched on the surface of this. There's just so much to this book. And I feel like it's some, it's an important one that everybody, everybody needs to read because food is so important across cultures. And then just um, you know, if for all of us, and then those who are impacted by, you know, it were a wounding, wounding situation of adoption, all the more important um, for food in the way that it can heal because of the caring and the cascading care that you mentioned. So uh, Deborah, thank you for writing the book. Thanks for spending time with us. We're so, so happy to have had you join us. I'm so delighted to be here. And thank you for inviting me into your conversation and your beautiful work that you're doing too. Um, and all the kids and families that you serve. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. I just want to give a quick a quick promo for, I'm so glad that when we have developed our books, book discussion guide, we are including our a few recipes in it. So um, that is so the book clubs can read it in community and have some ideas of how to nourish each other while they're talking. Thank you, Deborah. Oh, thank you. That's wonderful. I'll look forward to reading it as well. <laughs>